Hey, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a quick take on polls. Good evening. We begin with a brand new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. A new CBS News Battleground poll. According to a new national poll. The new poll. A new national poll. The new CBS News poll out today shows both Hillary Clinton. We hear so much about polls, especially right now as the election is getting closer. And today we're going to talk about what to believe, how they work, and why they might be very, very wrong. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent with NPR. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And we have a special non-NPR guest on the podcast this week from The Upshot. That's the data-driven reporting team at The New York Times, reporter Nate Cohn. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And so, Nate, polls and data are kind of your specialty at The Upshot. I want to step back just a tiny bit and ask the most basic possible question. What is a poll? Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. It's like Sorry, asking listeners. what oxygen um, is. You I'm, know? I'm, like, it's, it's hard to answer that question without just you know, restating it. A poll is a survey. No, a poll is <laughs> when you talk to a small number of people um, that you believe is representative of a broader population, and you try and make inferences about that broader population from the people that you talk to. The statistical principles underlying that relate to random sampling. You know, The idea that if you flip a coin a thousand times, you're going to be pretty sure that it's 50-50. Um, And you don't need to flip every coin in the world to know that. Okay, so we are hearing constantly every day, multiple times a day about new polls out showing this person up, this person down. Who are who is doing these polls? So, So most of the polls that you see are sponsored by mainstream media organizations and they're conducted by research firms that do a lot of work in other areas like marketing for corporations. But that's that's not all of the polling that you see out there. Right. You'll also see, you know, uh, educational institutions. You'll see Quinnipiac University. You'll see Monmouth University. They'll conduct their own. And then, of course, there is a place like public policy polling, which is a democratic polling firm. So it is important to know who is conducting the poll. Likewise, how it's conducted. You know, when you see a poll from YouGov or SurveyMonkey, then you can bet, you know, it's an internet poll. Which is to say, maybe not all polls are created equally. Absolutely. Yeah. How, how do we know what to believe? Uh, the truth is that very few people know what to believe, and they argue amongst themselves about what to believe. There are a lot of different ways to conduct the polls by telephone or online, whether you call cell phones and how many, what types of people you want to contact, how you choose likely voters. It all makes a difference. I think the best way to deal with that is to look at them in the aggregate, look at an average of polls. That'll help drown out some of the noise, but it doesn't answer the question of what's the exact right way to do it. And when I'm looking for an average of polls, I either go to this website, The Real Clear Politics, which has an average, or The Huffington Post has an average. So what you're saying is, and Danielle, maybe you should jump in here too, but trends, not individual pieces of data. Right. And there are a few things you can look at. Is a poll registered voters or likely voters? Uh, Or is a poll, you know, national? Is it of just a particular state? I mean... Right now, we're looking at primaries. You want to look at state polls. National polls, yeah, they give you a sense of what everybody's thinking. But so what we really want to know right now is who's going to win Iowa, who's going to win New Hampshire. National polls are totally fun. But they they really don't have much value. I mean, at this point in 2004, you would have thought Howard Dean was going to win based on national polls. In 2008, you would have thought it would have been Hillary Clinton and Rudy Giuliani. Uh, And they all lost. And they all lost. So national polls don't have a very good record. And that's in part because most voters nationally aren't paying attention. What happens in Iowa and New Hampshire is really going to matter down the line. And we're going to have a completely different race by the time most voters actually cast ballots. You know, for the longest time, I just sort of thought, okay, this poll is a snapshot and it is based on the respondents. And there you go. But it's actually there's a lot more going on under the hood. And that can determine 
really whether it's a good poll or not a good poll. Yeah, there are so many places in which polls can go wrong. And so it's not too surprising that they often do. You start by trying to take the best sample you can of a group of people that's representative of the population you're trying to talk to. And oftentimes, pollsters don't get that population when they complete their telephone calls or have run through their um, internet questionnaires. And so they have to make statistical adjustments to make sure that they have the right number of white people or the right number of young people. And just knowing how many white people or young people or black people should be in a poll is a question that you can get right or wrong, even if you're, even if everyone in that you talk to gave the truthful answer. And then at the end, at the back end, you have to make a call about who's going to vote and who's not going to vote. And that's another place where pollsters can go wrong. Right. And I mean, the method of polling can very much play into that. I mean, people who have cell phones only, they tend to be younger, as you might expect. They tend to be less educated. They tend to have lower income. Uh, they tend to be more Hispanic, uh, you know. And so then if you're doing if you're reaching a lot of people cell phone only or not enough people cell phone only, you're probably you may or may not be missing a share of the population. Same goes for Internet only polls. You're probably going to reach a younger audience with an Internet poll. So then, OK, what does that mean for your results? How much do you have to wait them? Let me pause you here for a second. What is waiting so it's a little bit of what Nate was talking about earlier is, you know, do you have enough of this kind of part of the population or that part of the population? It's trying to make up for whatever you have or don't have in your sample to try to make your sample more representative. So <laughs> pollsters can just put their hands on the on the scale? Uh, they can, and I think they do. Um, you can find examples of pollsters who appear to include more white people in a poll that otherwise looked pretty good for Obama to have the effect of, you know, showing Romney doing a little better than they would have otherwise. And they also can do the reverse where, ooh, this poll would show Romney ahead. We better include a few more black voters to, you know, get a more reasonable result. That's the blunt weapon that you can use. But there are more subtle and more acceptable ways to achieve the same thing. I'm thinking back to 2012. All the polls were saying it was incredibly close and Mitt Romney was potentially winning this thing. And then President Obama won, I think, to 2014. And the midterm election and all of the polls were pointing to Democrats actually winning and then they didn't. I mean, I even look at uh, there was a bunch of polling that said that Benjamin Netanyahu was totally not going to win re-election in Israel. And that was wrong. So are polls just done? No, I, I, I don't think they're that bad. I mean, if you want them to be exact and precise and anticipate the right outcome, you know, you're never going to get that from them. And I think all the examples you just gave um, are an example of a different kind of error. And to get a poll right, you have to avoid all of them. I mean, <laughs> in, in Gallup in 2012, uh, they showed Romney winning and they got it wrong because they were waiting to a population of Americans that was whiter than the one we live in. And that's just a basic factual mistake that they made. And they had a fine defense for why they were waiting to a population that was uh, too white. But uh, it was wrong. Um, they had errors in their likely voter model that assumed that people that had never, that didn't know where their precinct was wouldn't vote. When we now live in an era when I can Google where my precinct is on the day of an election and know where to go. Um, in the midterm elections, you had undecided voters breaking to the Republicans. And even when you get everything right, the possibility that voters move at the end can make sure you get it wrong. Well, so let's talk about right now, um, <laughs> this moment in time, this snapshot in time, what are the polls showing about the state of the race? Uh, on the Republican side, they show Donald Trump with a wide lead nationally, but in a more competitive race in the early states. In Iowa, it's very close between Trump and Ted Cruz. In New Hampshire, Trump has a more comfortable lead, although he's not doing as well as he is nationally. And there are a whole bunch of candidates clustered around 10 percent, including the four establishment 
potential heroes in, in uh, Jeb Bush and Chris Christie, Marco Rubio and John Kasich. And Ted Cruz is also near 10 percent. And on the Democratic side, uh, Hillary Clinton has a big lead nationally, but it's pretty close in New Hampshire and Iowa. And we've established national polls. We can safely ignore those right now. I think that the only reason um, to keep them in mind is if there's a big difference demographically between the early states in the country. And in this case, Iowa and New Hampshire are not reflective of the Democratic primary electorate. There are a lot of non-white voters in the national Democratic electorate. About 40 percent of Democrats are non-white. And in Iowa and New Hampshire, it's maybe 10 percent. And so... The national polls, I think, may be telling us something relevant on the Democratic side, and that's that Hillary Clinton's best strengths are not reflected in Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, whether those strengths survive after Iowa and New Hampshire is an open question, but they do tell us, I think, something important about whether Bernie Sanders is doing well in Iowa and New Hampshire because of their demographics or because people know him. And I think the answer is the demographics. Although the thing I would add, backing up to something that Nate said earlier, yes, when you look at the aggregate of polls in Iowa, yeah, you see a pretty tight race between Trump and Cruz. But the really interesting stuff comes when you look under the hood of those averages. And when you see that the Des Moines Register Bloomberg poll shows that Donald Trump is a little bit behind Ted Cruz. And the Des Moines Register Bloomberg Iowa poll is interesting to all of us because of one woman, Ann Selzer, who is the pollster who conducts this poll. And it is widely seen for political watchers as the most reliable poll about what's happening on the ground in Iowa. Right. She has an excellent track record. I mean, a really great case in point is 2014. She saw Joni Ernst winning that Senate race uh, when a lot of other pollsters really didn't see it and certainly didn't see it by how much Ernst ended up winning it by. And of course, in 2008, she saw President Obama gaining momentum and moving ahead and and winning Iowa. Mm-hmm. And people told her she was crazy. And she was right. Yeah, <laughs> of and course. she was we... right for the reason she said she would be right, too, which is important. She said that a large number of young voters and people who had never participated in the process before were going to vote. And they did. Mm-hmm. So how is it that what is Ann Selzer doing that other people aren't doing? And, and what can we learn about polling as a result? I, I think it's actually I think we can actually learn a lot from it because it's actually a big debate. Um, it, it, it's a microcosm of a big debate in the polling community right now, which is whether you should conduct polls. And this is going to get a little arcane, but it's about whether you should conduct polls by calling people off of the list of people who are registered to vote in a state. So when you register to vote, you provide your telephone number, or if you don't, some vendor out there can go and find you from your credit card record and put the right um, telephone number to the address. And you can either call people from that list of registered voters, or you can call random telephone numbers. Um, and most the, polls most call media, random telephone The media tends to call people using this random dialing technique. The CBS New York Times poll, for instance, calls people by randomly calling people. Um, But the campaigns have abandoned that method in favor of calling people off of these lists of registered voters, in part because it's cheaper, because you don't have to waste your time calling unregistered voters. It's also more accurate. You know that these people are registered voters. And the voter file also contains all of this important information on whether people have voted in the past um, that lets you make smarter decisions about modeling who is going to vote and who's not going to. And Ann Seltzer is using the voter file, unlike most of these polls. She is calling people off of the list of Iowa voters, and that is something that distinguishes what she's doing from a lot of people. And so it doesn't surprise me, and it doesn't surprise a lot of campaign pollsters that she is doing as well as she is. And then there's a final question, which is, how is she deciding who's going to vote and who's not? We don't know, but clearly her record gives reason to uh, give her a little extra weight when she 
um, makes an assessment who's going to vote and who's not going to. So, Nate, this is something that honestly I don't know. Why aren't more media pollsters uh, doing the same sorts of things that Ann Selzer is doing, like you working off of that voter file? So, you know, it gets back to a big philosophical question about what the point of polling is. Um, if you think that the point of a poll is to tell us what the people are thinking, then you don't simply care about the horse race number. You want to talk to all Americans. Mm -hmm. And a lot of media pollsters do not believe that they're conducting horse race polls. Now, I think that's I think that's wrong because you <laughs> they know, report they, them like horse because race they race. report them like horse race polls. And I think that if they decided that they were in the game of horse race polls, they might make a different choice. And the second thing is they would have to learn something new. They would need to learn how to handle a very large data set. You can't have a voter registration file in Excel. The technical skills involved are a little greater than they are for a traditional survey. And a lot of the people don't necessarily have that skill set. And, you know, the campaigns do. And the campaigns have been highly critical of media polls for this reason. And when you hear campaigns saying that the public polls are wrong, this is probably the reason why. So we've been singing the praises here of pollster Ann Selzer. What does her what do her latest polls show about the state of the race in Iowa. So she right now has Cruz leading in Iowa, uh, 25 to Donald Trump's 22 with the other various candidates behind all of that. Interestingly, she has Trump with a lower level of support than several other recent polls have shown. Likewise, she has Clinton at 42 and Sanders at 40. And I think that it's interesting that Seltzer shows uh, Clinton doing well and shows Cruz doing well compared to other polls because both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are drawing on voters who don't usually vote in Iowa caucuses. Bernie Sanders is doing extremely well among young people. According to national polls, he's doing a lot better than Barack Obama did at this time in 2008. And he's doing much worse than Barack Obama did among older voters. While Donald Trump is drawing on a lot of less educated voters who traditionally don't participate, and even some registered independents and registered Democrats who may not even be traditional Republicans at all. And, you know, it's interesting that Ann Seltzer is the one that is showing Trump doing worse because, you know, her technique using registered voter, using lists of registered voters, and then apparently, at least if her record is any indication, apparently having a good way to determine who's likely to vote or not, uh, suggests that maybe these two candidates are not doing as well as mobil at mobilizing their irregular basis of support as they hope to. Right. One of the fascinating things to look at after the Iowa caucus will probably be what turnout looks like. You know, the bump in turnout in 2008 was attributed to Obama. So, OK, are candidates like Sanders and Trump going to lead to similar bumps in turnout of people who, you know, don't usually vote in Iowa caucuses, of which there are a lot? The question now, I guess, is are polls underestimating or overestimating, say, a Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump? I mean, how do you account for people who are non-traditional voters? It's really hard. I mean, mm -hmm. most media pollsters figure out who's likely to vote by asking them say, are you definitely going to vote? Are you probably going to vote? But we know from looking at past voter records that a lot of people misrepresent their vote intentions. And in particular, people are much more likely to say that they're going to vote than they actually do. And that poses a real problem because there's if you have irregular voters, you can't just look at their past vote history to figure out what they're going to do. But if you can't trust what they're telling you, then how do you handle that? Mm -hmm. And you know, the pollsters that do the best at this, I think, have a long set of data to go on. They can look back over time and figure out what questions predict um, when people are going to vote and when they're not going to. And, you know, I don't know what Ann Seltzer does. Uh, her her methodology is not extremely public. And given how her reputation is and that she might have the secret sauce, I'd probably be mm -hmm. keeping it secret, too. <laughs> right. Um, but we know she has a lot of data. She's been conducting polls in Iowa for a very long time. And I think that if there were anyone in the public polling world who would be able to get a sense 
of whether Bernie Sanders supporters are giving the same sort of indications of enthusiasm and likelihood to turn out as Obama supporters did in 2008, she would be the one to know it and would be the one who could have a model that was designed to account for those changes in enthusiasm among less regular voters. Of course, Nate is talking about the difficulty of determining, you know, who's a likely voter, who's actually going to show up on caucus day. But then one I think one of the most interesting questions that's been raised during this primary season is also whether people are representing two pollsters who they're going to vote for. This gets to something that is known as the Bradley effect. Um, It's the idea that voters in California were telling pollsters that they would vote for Tom Bradley, who was an African-American candidate for governor. And then they got in the ballot box and they were no longer public. And they didn't vote for him. Right. So one thing that uh, I've been reading about in the run-up to caucus and primary days is this question of whether people are not telling pollsters that they're going to vote for Donald Trump when they in fact are. And like we were talking about before the podcast, Nate, you were saying what, that in online polls, uh, Trump ends up faring better. Is that that right? Trump fares better in polls that are taken online or importantly, in those automated surveys where you're only talking to a computer and it just says press one for Trump, press two for you know Bush or whatever. He does better in that setting than he does when it's a live interviewer asking you whether you're really going to vote for Trump or not. Now, the question is, is that because the respondent is reluctant to divulge that they support someone who is unpopular and who that you know they implicitly fear being judged by this interviewer or is it because in a in a less formal setting that people just you know feel comfortable saying that they're going to vote for this guy Trump because it's the first guy who's on their mind you know I don't think we know which it is but we know that there's a difference okay so i guess this gets to this more fundamental question of do why do the polls matter why does it matter well should they matter or do they matter well i mean okay, both, both. Is yeah. i mean they they clearly do matter Right. I mean, you look at the race right now. How different would it be if Donald Trump had no support in the polls? I mean, Jeb Bush's campaign would have so much more life to it if he had a real block of supporters on his side. Because he has so much else going for him. He has endorsements. He has, of course, all of that money. And yet he doesn't have the poll support. And that is what is, you know, dragging on him right now. It really affects the decision making, I think, of a lot of influential people in in the Republican Party. Who should they get behind? Who should they donate to? These decisions matter, and they're clearly informed by their assessments of which candidates can win and which can't. And also there's the practical implications here in the debates where they are creating cutoffs for who gets on that stage based on how much polling they're getting. And, you know, this is something that I looked into with that first debate. You know, there are some, you know, potentially not very meaningful differences between the people that made it to the main stage and the people who ended up being in the, you know, as we as people call it, the kitty table debate. You know, maybe that maybe that cutoff was a little bit arbitrary. Maybe they should have maybe they should have found a different way to do it. And that brings us to another issue which you raised in that story, Danielle, which is margin of error. Right. So let's use a hypothetical poll where Bernie Sanders is at 42 and where Hillary Clinton is at 40. And let's say that that poll has a margin of error of plus or minus four percentage points. Okay, so yes, Bernie Sanders looks like he's ahead, but you can't say with much certainty that he really is ahead. He he doesn't have what is called a statistically significant lead over Hillary Clinton in that poll, in which case you can all you can really say is that they're essentially pretty close or neck and neck. And I guess the other question is, are polls predictive or are they a moment in time? They are reporting what the public thinks right now, but we compare them to election results. Right now, for instance, the, the polls are not necessarily very reflective of the actual results. You can go back and look over recent primaries and see for yourself that 
the race can change a lot, even over just two weeks as voters start to tune in and make decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like, this is why, uh, you know, you'll have a lot of polling experts say, you know, don't pay attention to the hypothetical matchups, no matter how much Trump talks about them. And he does. Or any other candidate. And Bernie about Sanders them. is and talking Sanders. about them a lot, say, making an argument for electability as a result of those polls. Absolutely. Yeah. And whether Bernie Sanders, I mean, Bernie Sanders does seem to do better in general election matchups than Hillary Clinton right now, but no one's attacking him. In fact, the Republicans are praising mm-hmm. him. And I mean, think back to when everybody was wondering whether Biden was running. Then Biden's name started getting dropped into these. I mean, that was even more problematic because, I mean, was Biden getting, you know, the sort of scrutiny that any other candidate who was actually in the race getting? No, not at all. And so then when you start bringing in these outside people, sometimes it gets even more meaningless. (laughs) I feel like we're going to end this conversation as nihilists or something. (laughs) What does it all matter? I know. And on that happy note, that is it for today. Thanks for listening to us. And let us know if you like the show. You can find us on Twitter. And you can also email us. That's nprpolitics at npr.org. You can send us your questions. Like, I'm sure there are a lot more questions that arose out of this conversation. And we'll get to some of them in our next weekly roundup. We'll also talk about the recent Democratic debate in that roundup and all the other big political news of the week. I'm Tamara Keith. White House correspondent for NPR. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And I'm Nate Cohn from The Upshot at The New York Times. And we are so grateful that you schlepped over and joined us for the podcast. Thanks for having me. We will see you all next time here on the NPR Politics Podcast.